game. Of course it's gonna crash when I'm trying to appreciate it. That's what Bethesda games do. Welcome to the Audio Files. It's a video game club where good friends get together to talk about good music. I'm your excited music business friend, Knox, one of your co-hosts of the Audio Files, joined with one of the most talented and just funniest performers, music analyzers that I know, Mr. Malik Samore. How are you doing? In today's episode, we are talking about Skyrim. We've been excited to talk about this game since we got started in this club because there's so much to talk about that we aren't going to get to everything we want to talk about. We are so going to revisit Skyrim. It's such a deep game with such a deep impact on gaming culture and that it's something we're going to keep coming up to. And I think it was actually important for us to study in the beginning of this club because I think that we're going to find a lot of RPGs made in the last 10 years take inspiration from how the Elder Scrolls did things. Wow. Couldn't have said it better myself. The context for The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, or as we can unpretentiously refer to it from now on, Skyrim. (laughs) Skyrim came out in 2011, and it is an RPG. Some might say one of the most definitive RPG series. It's really important to jump on early on that it's a big RPG which is what we're going to focus on a lot today, is its size, because its size is mirrored in the music. The composer is taking so many different choices to lengthen the music in a meaningful way to us, the listener and the player, because of the limitations of the engine, because of the immense pressure of the time he has to fill, and just a number of other reasons. I want to take time to acknowledge and credit the people who made it. So, of course, this is Bethesda. It's a definitive Bethesda RPG. Bethesda has been around since the mid-90s, I think, or early 90s. Wow. You know, of course, Todd Howard is known as like the Bethesda guy. He's a meme in gaming culture. So produced by Bethesda Game Studios, published by Bethesda Softworks, where they have both the production side and the publisher under one umbrella. uh, And that all falls under ZeniMax Media, parent company. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't video games magic? (laughs) I sure think the ownership of them is. (laughs) So, of course, the legendary soundtrack to Skyrim was written by Jeremy Soule. Mm -hmm. This is the same composer that composed for Knights of the Old Republic, which we did in the first episode of the club. Composed for Elder Scrolls V, Elder Scrolls IV. (laughs) He composed for the Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets video game. What a legend. That's funny. He adapted two different John Williams scores. Yeah. Looks like they trust him, don't they? I wonder if Warner Brothers is related to LucasArts at that time. You got a lot of context for who made the game and what the game's about. It's big, keeping us interested for a long period of time. Tell us a little bit about why length is so important to what he needed to do. I think to answer that question, you have to look at what were the objectives of the video game studio that made this. So... Let's consider the game from the perspective of the game developer. So I think we can work backwards into figuring out what some of the objectives Bethesda had in the music of Skyrim. Having done that for a bit, I think it boils down to their first objective being using music to immerse the player. And they had to do this despite the challenge of having limited creation tools. 
and also had limited ways for the game to interact with the music. And by meeting those challenges, they managed to make a score that has had a lasting impact on games culture. To the average listener, and to me at first, it sounds like immersion is what every game is going for, so why bother? But I do want to point out that there are games out there that their main thing is focus or their main thing is action or their main thing is the music itself. You know what I'm saying? Not every game is focused on immersion in the same way that Skyrim is. In a Super Mario Brothers game, the music isn't there to make you feel like you are there in the world of Super Mario. No, it is not. You could make an argument for Mario Sunshine. You can't really make an argument for the other ones. When you're setting out to make a role-playing game, because let's remember Skyrim was made that was made by Bethesda and Todd Howard. Todd Howard grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons in his basement in the 80s. So that's what he's doing here with his games, is he's just still creating the ultimate role-playing experience where you're really taking on the role of a hero. You brought up to me earlier, it uses the whole spectrum of diegeticism. Crazy way to say it, but of course, diegetic, right? That just means like, can the characters in the story actually hear the music that we, the observer, are hearing at the same time, right? Is this music happening in the world of the fiction or in our real world? So in that way, Skyrim uses music not just diegetically, also non-diegetically, but in fact blends them together. There is a kind of bleed over of the diegeticism of the sound, which I think is a perfect way to invite the player in and immerse them in what's going on in the story and on the screen. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the perfect examples of that blend is the main title, isn't it? The main theme of the game is written in the language of the dragons. It's written in the language of the fictional world. And not only that, but when you analyze that text and translate it from the dragon language of Dova, you realize it's a prophecy about the dragonborn, the player. Oh, I didn't know that. The main theme of Skyrim is about you. He has method after method after method of stretching out a certain amount of music. First, tell me why. Why does he need to stretch out the music? I don't really know much about the implementation of music into games, but you were talking to me earlier about like he might have a drum track that starts first and then other tracks would layer in as the game progresses or as you get into later stages of the boss you're facing and things like that. This kind of sophisticated implementation, that's not in this game, right? That's right. And it goes to one of the things I was talking about, some of the potential struggles that they might have had making this game is you have limited tools of the Bethesda creation kit, the game engine that was made. Because of course, Bethesda is famous for making their own game engine. They don't use Unreal or Unity or anything like that. They use a custom engine called the Bethesda Creation Kit. And it is lovely to all you modders out there. I am one of you. I have been one of you. We love the Bethesda Creation Kit. Bethesda, thank you so much for releasing the Bethesda Creation Kit for free into the world. It's such a good thing for the development of art and commerce. It made your game last longer because you realize that mods in your community can keep your game alive because all doing art is is building a community. Is Nintendo listening? Because Bethesda is making their own game engine, they may not necessarily have had the resources at the time in the mid-2000s to make their engine really open up possibilities to interact with the music in more ways. A key way to analyze the way that music is used in video games is the responsiveness. I think that's something we're going to be talking about in a lot of games. Is To what degree is the 
actions of the music corresponding to the actions of the player. So in Skyrim, it's actually not very responsive because the music changes, yes, when you get attacked, when combat ends, when you are exploring, when it is daytime, when it is nighttime, and your location. I'm sure there are more, but that's generally the ways that the music system picks which track to play. Because that's the only cue that the composer has to go on. The composer is given a list of, I'm to compose for daytime, I'm to compose for nighttime, I'm to compose for cold, for warm, for inside, outside. Not only is the composer given more freedom, but the composer is given more responsibility. And because of this, the composer, instead of writing an A section of a piece and then using the different layers of that A section in different parts of the implementation of the game, the composer has to write the A section again in a new orchestration. For example, if he wants the player to hear a melody again in a different way, he can't just mess with the tracks that he has. He has to recompose that melody for the listener in the way he wants us to hear it. It gives the composer a lot of authority to set the tone, and tone is so important to an Elder Scrolls RPG. You and I both agree that tone equals immersion. Tone is the method of immersion. So how do you then create a consistent tone of music across dozens of hours of composition? You mess with variation. Sometimes the music is as if the people are hearing it in the world. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the music is major or minor. Sometimes it's something totally different. Sometimes we are in a solid tonality, a solid key. And in that piece, we stay in that key. And sometimes there is no key. We are totally fluid. There are pieces with strong melodies. There are pieces with weak melodies. There are pieces with both. He has a style. He has a soundscape. He has a sonic world he's living in. He does not have rules. Take a step back and think back to Bethesda that released Skyrim in 2011. Think of that Bethesda. They were on top of the world. The point I'm ultimately trying to make here is that Skyrim had a lasting impact on games culture. This is a video game that is 13 years old. And one of the reasons that I would argue this game had such a strong impact on culture is because the music was so damn good. Dark Souls didn't have that. Love me some Dark Souls. It didn't have that. There are other games that old that had the staying power, but the score didn't have the staying power with them. Skyrim's not one of those games. Almost every video game uses music, but very few of them make music. When I'm walking into Right Run and I hear with the world stretching out before me, everyone around me talking about some amazing story for me to discover. And I just zoomed out my camera, I let it spin around, and just listened to the song, and then Skyrim crashed. What? It's a Bethesda game, of course it's gonna crash when I'm trying to appreciate it, that's what Bethesda games do! I want you to break down some of the more compositional elements and really get into the musician's perspective of this game. Oh, how I'm itching to do it. But first, what I really want to do is tell people a little more about how they can get involved in the network. You mean we got to do some promo? Let's do a little bit of promo. Let's do the promo! Let's do some promotional. We do the promo. We do the promo. We do the promo. So here we are, episode three of the audio files. I thought we'd have given up by now. Turns out we got nothing better to do. 
This has been great so far. I'm so excited about where the audio files is going. And one of the ways that I've really started to engage with people is on social media. And if you want to engage with us on social media, a great place where you can do that is following us on Instagram. You're going to find a lot of great cut downs from our show and our previous shows. It's going to be really easy for you to share with your friends and just enjoy on your own personal time. Sharing those reels that we'll be posting, by the way, is a ridiculously helpful way to help us in the almighty algorithm. If you're there on Instagram and you want to hear from us, shoot us a message. We're a small channel. We're going to get back to you. We love talking to people who are interested in being involved in our network in any way, big or small. And you know what? I'm even going to invite you right now. If you want to shoot us a message, tell us a game that you really want us to cover. Let's start a list. We love suggestions, don't we? And if you want to give us a suggestion, a great way to get our ear is by giving us your money. You can follow us on Patreon. Just two bucks a month gets you access to our bonus show, Audio Files AF. And for just a few bucks more, if you're really crazy, you can get your name read out on the show. Thanks for being a member of the Audiophiles. And we hope that you are an audiophile to play with sound. Let's get into what we've all been waiting for, the music. There's so much on this soundtrack, it was impossible to narrow it down. So these are picked specifically to demonstrate different ways that Skyrim uses music in incredible ways. I definitely want to start with one of yours because there's no better place to start than... The beginning. The main theme to Skyrim, officially titled Dragonborn. This is an overture. How? It does the things an overture is supposed to do for the listener. The main melody, the yum bum bum, yum bum bum. It has that one, two, three rhythmic attitude to it, the rhythmic melodic pattern. That's your first melody, and then it's immediately followed by yum bum bum, yum bum bum, yum bum bum, which is the same rhythmic pattern, but faster. And then that is followed by bum, 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 which is the same rhythmic pattern again, one, two, three, huh, but it's way slower. So what the composer is doing is he's not only getting his most bang for his buck from each melodic idea, which releases him from coming up with endless ideas, but he's setting us up the listener for when the melody comes back later in the game, which is exactly what an overture is supposed to do, because when he brings it back slow, we've heard it slow. When he brings it back fast, we've heard it fast. If he's anywhere in between, that's our main melody. We are immersed by kind of our reality bleeding into the reality of the world. Where this song that I hear in the trailer of a video game that plays on the Super Bowl commercial is actually a language from a story that I'm about to tell about myself. The horns that you're hearing are horns that the people might hear. The language you're hearing is the language that the people would speak. It, even though it's not music that they're actually hearing in the moment, it's halfway there because it's music they might hear. One of my favorite anecdotes about the main theme to Skyrim is that it was one of the earliest ideas that Todd Howard had solidified about what the next Elder Scrolls game was going to be. He had the thought, what if for the main theme of Skyrim, it's the Elder Scrolls theme, but sung by an epic barbarian choir? Talk about going above and beyond for your assignment. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it in a dragon language. What dragon language? Mm, give me a weekend. It's funny you said that because that's the other part of the anecdote. It wasn't Jeremy Soule who wrote the text. It was one of the lead writers of the game who went home over the weekend and drank mead all weekend. You're joking. That's actually how it happened? Got drunk on mead and wrote out the Dova language and gave it to Jeremy Soule. He wrote out the poem. I literally cannot believe that's actually that how it happened. True story told from a Todd Howard interview. That writer must feel so honored.
I was really, really excited to talk about Masser. I found it in the middle of the commercial soundtrack, and it's one of those pieces that has like an ambient feeling. At first, it didn't really strike my attention, and the second I gave it a second look, I was like, what on earth is happening here? There's so much complexity. This always plays at nighttime, which makes sense. You know, this piece is named after the larger of the two moons of the planet of Nern. Whoa! I didn't Master and Secunda, the two moons of the world of Tamriel. That's tasteful. And it always, to me, felt like a track that really makes sense to be played at nighttime. The harmonies are so distantly related. What I mean by that is each chord that follows the next chord, instead of following the next chord with a chord that is harmonically related to the one that was previous to it, it is as far away in the overtone series in the harmonic structure as it possibly can be. He purposely keeps the pattern as vague as he possibly can to keep you on your toes makes you uneasy when you're traveling around at night. And it keeps his ideas fresh and listenable more than once. Here's the A section, right? He starts you off with a melody of just descending half steps. Do, 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 do. It couldn't be a simpler melody. It's not particularly beautiful, but when it's that slow, who cares, right? And basically, it's a simple melody with wacky chords underneath. If I read them to you now to anyone who cares, E major, E major seven, nothing crazy, immediately D minor, weird unrelated chord choice. Now F sharp minor, even more unrelated. A flat major, E minor, D augmented, like there is no pattern. But it doesn't end at the A section either. If the harmonic structure wasn't so complicated, then it wouldn't have that rich beauty. And if it didn't have the rich beauty, that descending melody that I just sang for you would get so boring so fast. Again, bang for our buck. Here you've got this beautiful baritone voice that comes in through much of this song. And he's singing in presumably some language of the world of Tamriel. Maybe it's just vowels. Maybe it's fake Latin. Maybe it's lorem ipsum. But I think that the quality of having this solo baritone is an intentional choice that makes the piece feel somewhat sacred or ancient. Super apt. I didn't think about that at all, but it lent, it does lend a sacred tone to it, doesn't it? If Jeremy Soule wasn't going for sacred tone, he would have added some vibrato in there, maybe like a bel canto tone. It's such a pure, no vibrato, pure clean vowel tone for that baritone soloist, to the point where we're wondering if he's real. There's one more thing I really wanted to talk about in Masser because it's something we talked about earlier, which is Jeremy Soule's limitations with the implementation in the score means that because he doesn't have so many layering options, right? We were talking about how he needs to recompose the same melody over and over if he wants the audience to hear it in a different way. This piece is such a perfect example of that because he brings back the A section with that descending line, but he needs to reorchestrate the whole thing. It captures both the moods, but the point is, is that he, poor Jeremy Soule, had to go back in the studio and reorchestrate that whole A section. <laughs> so tell us a little about the next piece you wanted to talk about. Far Horizons. This is, of course, the track that's known by, I think, most iconically, the Distant Horn intro. It's such a great little melody. It's repeated throughout the piece. And... I want to start us off by talking again about the orchestration, not just the fact that these are horns, but actually the quality of the horns too. These horns sound like they're really far away on the horizon. Oh. 
So to me, this is adding to that theme we've been talking about in Skyrim of semi-diegetic or quasi-diegetic music that bleeds over between reality and the game world. Those horns didn't even cross my mind, but you're right. This sounds like they're like 100 yards away. It sounds like something, some horns that you could be hearing way out there on the field of adventure. Jeremy Soule wants you to pay so hard attention to the mood he's setting in this piece. What does he give you but an extremely organized melody. He, throughout the piece, hands off the melody from the different sections of the string. It's repeated in different ways, in higher voices and lower voices. Right, and there are moments where he where he hints at starting the melody again, but then doesn't, or hints at the middle of the melody, then takes it away. And then there's one moment about two-thirds of the way through the piece. Everything comes together in this grand statement. Those big grand moments, they're in Skyrim, but they're far between, aren't they? He makes you wait a long time for each one. Such a delicate balance that he has to make because if he loads the score with organized melodies with catchy tunes like this one then they don't stand out and those moments where you're going from town to town and you're waiting forever with ambient music and then finally grand triumph comes in the gravity is taken away if it's overused some of the unique magic here with video games is of course the composer doesn't have direct control over what the player is going to be seeing on their screen when the music is playing. He sets us up for this grand moment of beauty when we're really just like walking down a forest road. Allow me to muse because I feel like almost a little bit of that would be taken away with a more sophisticated implementation. It's not you choosing where you're going to hear the music. The game takes more of the responsibility out of your hand, which is great. I love modern game implementation, but limitation has its charms, right? Skyrim and any Bethesda RPG takes a little bit of buy-in. You have to want to want it, right? Yes, you have to want to want it. And even with the music implementation, that shines through. The next piece I really wanted to talk about is Dawn. It's not as fluid and crazy as some of the other ones in the soundtrack, but it has a fun pattern, and that's really what I love about it. The whole piece is an exploration of the key of G, and like all of the other ones, he's getting the most bang for his buck he possibly can for the key of G. He starts you in G minor, he takes you to G harmonic major, which is not super common, but it's super beautiful. And it's a fun in-between between between minor and major that he transitions you finally into G major. It's G minor, G minor major-ish, which we're going to call harmonic major. And then he finishes you in G major. What you're getting is an exploration of the key of G. It's like walking around different corners of the room. And there's a feeling of warming to me. Not warmth, but warming. He demonstrates that with the stacking of the melodies in the beginning. Do, do, do. And then he gives you, after you get used to it, do, do, do. And those melodies stack on top of each other. But only when he stacks the third melody on top is when you know the A section's ending. This takes us into harmonic major, just enough for you to kind of get used to the idea of we have a raised third and a lowered sixth. We're in major and we're in minor. And then finally, G major to take you home. What's the overall purpose of all of that function? The purpose is the bang for his buck. Now by that, are you just saying he's trying to fill time? Pretty much. He's not trying to make you uneasy like Masser. So he doesn't need to use the harmonic complexity to 
shift your focus. He needs to use the harmonic complexity to keep things fresh. I'm glad that you compared this to Master because there is a different tone. This piece isn't quite so mysterious or dark or have those undercurrents of danger that Master did. No. Why? Master is changing keys, changing tonalities. I wouldn't even say keys. It's changing tonalities every second. This piece stays in G the whole time. Oh, that's really fascinating. So because we're more in a centered key center throughout the piece, a more consistent key center, it's more comfortable. And the development from stacking minor melodies to developing into something more major, darkness to light, and then finally finishing in major, finally completing the darkness to light transition is the sun coming up. Oh, I love that. These guys know what they're doing. And Jeremy Soule, he, he avails himself of his expertise in music theory to take us on a journey that will win him awards. <laughs> we might have to revisit Skyrim someday. We only scraped the surface. There, there are a lot other huge ideas that he communicated to us that we would love to explore. What are these key ideas again. Well, today we kind of went over how he takes advantage and uses the responsibility given to him by the limitations of the implementation. And we also talked about the quasi-diegeticness of the role of music in this game. That is the way that there is a bleeding between the reality of the player and the reality of the game world. But what also kept coming up was how Jeremy Soul gets the most juice from the fruit, the most bang for his buck with every minute of music, with every moment, with every rhythmic and melodic idea. He recycles it in a way that keeps it fresh to where he doesn't need to keep coming up with new ideas. This is for his benefit and for ours. Not every game has the goal of immersion. That's what we all love about Skyrim. We all love the feeling of being there in that world. And Jeremy Soul just captures that so well. Mm -hmm. Ugh, video games are just magical. Yeah. I mean, I love a score that it's like main idea is action or I like a score that it's main idea is fun. But my favorite kind of video game score is where the main goal is putting you there, because that's why we play video games to play in another world. And it's so much deeper than the experience of watching this on a film because we, the player, are interacting with it. When you're watching a film, the viewer in the theater isn't interacting with the composer. But in a game, it's happening in real time, being transmitted through millions and millions of bits and bops. <laughs> a bunch of computer parts, a bunch of electronic wiring is transmitting this absolutely magnificent immersive world what a powerful form of art wow. this has been the audio files podcast we are a network of musicians developers gamers dedicated to the advancement of art in video games i've been Knox, and i've been malik we love the art of sound and if you made it this far that probably means you do too thanks for being a part of this till next time play with sound that was perfect <laughs>